uh, it's always a uh, nervous thing for me to preach uh, to a church. Not that I'm uncomfortable speaking in public, not that I'm uncomfortable you know, dwelling on the Bible and giving my thoughts about a certain matter, um, but the gravity of this moment is just always... For me, I don't get nervous thinking about it. I don't get nervous you know, really leading up to it. It's usually like that first couple moments while waiting to show up. I was always, in public speak, I was always the one who wanted to go first, get it over with, and be done with it. Um, so that's, it's always that nerve-wracking thing a little bit. But uh, our message today is Matthew 4, or, uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Um, I was slightly surprised, and I counted it as a, um, as a blessing to be able to continue uh with what we're already going through in Matthew. Uh, of course, it's always easier to preach something when it's right in line with what we've already been hearing. So I was excited that I didn't have to do all of this uh, back research and uh, context. So we, we've been going through Matthew. And that Matthew allowed me to continue in what he's already been teaching. I thought, I was like, okay, wow. Um, but it was funny, he did a lot of preliminary study into... Uh, the commentaries, and so he texted me. I had I had camp this week for my school, so I was out of town for a few days. And he was like, "Okay, I'm going to read through the commentaries, and then I'm going to leave you some commentaries for you to go through." I'm thinking, "Okay, so like two or three, or maybe four commentaries. I'll be able to, um, you know, really get into them, really think through." And then I showed up, and there's like this stack of books about six high. <laughs> I'm like, "Okay," um, so. I worked on it all day yesterday and sent him my, uh, my, my outline. And he's like, I don't know how your outlines work, but if that was my outline, that would be like a 60 to 90 minute sermon. So I told him, I was like, okay, I got it. So watch the time. Don't go over. So I got up here about 11.35. My plan is to not go over 12.05, half hour. That's it. Um, I can be long-winded. I get that from my dad, um, but I'm going to try not to do that. So... Let's look at the scripture, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Main points I want to want us to look at here, uh, as we know, Matthew is talking specifically to the nation of Israel. So everything that Matthew touches on, we can look specifically look back at the Old Testament. So in other books like uh, Luke, for example, he's his was more written towards uh, the Greeks, towards the the general populace of Christians, where Matthew was specifically written to the Jews. So he is already assuming that they have knowledge of the Old Testament. And so all of these things connect back to the Old Testament, and we're going to see that here. But the main points I want us to look at is the rising Messiah, the suffering Messiah, and the worshiping Messiah. Those are going to be the three main things I want to emphasize with us. So Matthew actually gives us this passage in detail where Mark and John do not. Mark actually gives us a brief synopsis of the passage. He says, Jesus was in the wilderness and he was tempted by the devil. 
and that's about all that Mark says about it. John doesn't even mention it. The only other passage is Luke um, has the, the full tempting of Jesus here, but he has it in a slightly different order. So it's very important that we see the order of things, how Matthew presents them is how that relates to the Jewish people. And so Christ is the Messiah to Matthew. He's, not, he's the promised one. He is the answer to all of Israel's problems. That's how Matthew sees Jesus, and that's how he's presenting him. And we can look at that. Christ is the answer to all of our failures. And as we watch this storyline that Matthew brings to us, we can see Christ overcome where, the, where others have fallen. So let's look at how Christ is the rising Messiah. Evagrius, who lived in um, the uh, 4th century, says, The further the soul advances, the greater are the adversaries against it which it must contend. So as we look at the rising Messiah, what I'm not trying to point at is he's not ascending into heaven. He's not ascending to the cross. During Christ's life, he goes through a lot of peaks and valleys like we all do, where we we reach this point where we have a victory, but then life tends to slow down and we're kind of in this low point again. And then we have another conflict and it brings us up again and then our life goes down. So this is another high point in Christ's life. And you think, how can it get any higher than what he just went through? Well, we look back at what we've been learning. We see in Matthew, Christ was born in a lowly estate. Um, he started off proving that he was the Messiah by starting with Abraham and giving him the genealogy. And then he has him in Bethlehem, the lowly beginnings that we all talked about. And then we see that Jesus went through Egypt. He had to go to Egypt and came out of Egypt. And then we see Christ showing up on the scene. And the very next thing after coming out of Egypt back to Nazareth, the very next thing we see is Jesus coming to be baptized and we see him go through the waters of baptisms, all very important. Then coming out of the waters of baptism, we see Jesus Christ being proclaimed as the Son of God. That's what's leading us to this point. This is, this is all an escalation of, here's this buildup, here's this Christ the Messiah, here's the proof that he was going to come, here's all these lowly points of where he started, and he's now rising up. He's the Son of God. And that's where we see in verse 1, Now Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So Jesus is coming off this high of this is the Son of God, and here we see he's facing his greatest challenge. This isn't Herod, a physical man who's trying to just kill him physically. We're talking about Satan. We're talking about the accuser. We're talking about the deceiver. We're talking about the catalyst that kind of led into man's first downfall. So here we have Jesus. He's coming to this peak, this pinnacle, to meet this greatest foe. Now, in any type of competition, whether it is sports, whether it's video games, whether it's a, you know, non-athletic sports, or even at work, when you rise in position, 
when you rise in accolade, you are met with greater and greater challenges. That's the way life works. As you rise through your life, you are met with equal challenges. And that's where Christ is right here. He is rising in his life, in his peak, and he's met by this great challenge. And here we get to see it. You know, a lot of times we, we get to a point in our jobs where it seems like we're stuck, where it seems like we're getting higher and it just, the weights of our position, the weights of those challenges just keep pressing on us. And we wonder, okay, how do, how are we supposed to handle this? How are we supposed to take on this extra responsibility? How are we supposed to take on this new challenge? How are we supposed to take on this new opponent, this opposition that's against us? And that's where Christ is. He is brought from baptism, a declaration. It's like, this is it. Now he's in the wilderness. He's about to be tempted by Satan. So let's look at the conflict Jesus was met with as he rises to this point in his story. And that's where I want to get to our second point, the suffering Messiah. So we have the rising Messiah. We see that he's on this path. He's just rising straight up. And if he got any higher, you can't get any higher than the Son of God. You really can't. And that's where he meets his greatest challenge in. But not only does he meet his greatest challenge, he also suffers beforehand. You know, a lot of time we look at boxers, and they'll do all their training, and they'll prepare, they'll do all their work, but then they get to weigh-in day. And so what they'll do is they'll go sit in a sauna, or they will, they'll not eat, they'll starve themselves, so that way they can match that weigh-in goal, because it's a strategy to be able to outweigh your opponent, so they kind of manufacture their weight, so that way they hit below the goal by make, causing themselves to suffer a little bit. And it puts a strain on their body, but they're betting that their extra muscle that they, would, that they have built up is able to overcome their opponent, who also is in that same weight class. So let's look at what Christ did, how he suffered. First thing we notice is Christ was in the wilderness. The Spirit led him into the wilderness. When the Bible there is talking about wilderness, it's talking about a place where there's nothing. Not, not necessarily desert. This could also mean just like a, a forest. This could also mean just like a, a field or just a, a plain area where there isn't really, there's not really that much food. There's not really any civilization. It's, it's wilderness. It's untamed land. Uh, one of the other passages actually in um, Mark, I believe it tells us that he was surrounded by wild beasts. So there's no people there. This, he didn't take a caravan into the wilderness. He didn't have his disciples. He didn't have John the Baptist. He went out into the wilderness alone. No one, and being alone, no one was there to encourage him or help him. Of course he had the Spirit. Of course he had God because God's with us always. But we know how hard that is. We know how hard it is being alone. We know how hard it is when you feel like there's no one to relate to you. Whether it's in church and there's no one in your age, or whether it's out in the job and you know you're the you're the boss, 
And so you're out alone, you're secluded, and everyone looks to you. The buck stops here. And so you feel alone. You feel like all this pressure is on you to make things happen. And here we have Christ. He was actually alone. And then we also see that he was hungry. In verse 2, And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Why was that detail in there? Well, that's in there to point out that even though Jesus has been proclaimed the Son of God and He is God Himself, He is also very much a man. He was hungry. Most of us in America, we go a few hours and we're hungry. Jesus, He had gone 40 days and 40 nights. That's some extreme hunger. I've tried to fast for 40 days before. I made it like two um, before I gave in. But, and I was, I was hungry after two. I can't even fathom what the hunger must have been like for 40 days and 40 nights. So Jesus was suffering because he didn't have any company, socially suffering. He was suffering physically. And now, He's suffering spiritually because he's met with the greatest of all deceivers, Satan himself. You know, one thing that I, I really was really brought out to me from this passage is we don't see Satan's work in the Bible too much. It's really only two or three places, uh, well, two places besides this particular temptation that we see specifically Satan doing something. And that's with Eve in the garden, and that's with Job. Those are the other, only other two places. And honestly, we don't see Satan's work either. The reason why is because he is a spiritual being, and we don't have that sight to be able to cross over into that spiritual plane. But Jesus did. Like We need to understand that about Jesus is not only did he just see the physical realm and all the beast and all the lonesomeness of that, but he also saw the spiritual realm and he saw the corruption and he saw Satan himself coming to challenge him. He saw his enemy. A lot of times we give in and we don't even see our enemy. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers. Jesus actually saw them. We don't see them. Jesus saw all those things. And here, God chooses to show us that Satan is working in this particular case. Now, this isn't some wicked demon as as we see in, in fiction and in horror films where You have this creature trying to destroy physically. No, Satan's not about that life. That's that's something else. Satan is a deceiver. He doesn't want to destroy you physically. He wants to destroy your relationship with God. That's his goal. He doesn't care how it happens. He just wants you to not be connected to God. And here we have him come before Jesus with that same goal. With that same thought in mind. It's like, I am going to get... Jesus to become disconnected with God. Now, when we think of a test, when we think of something to prove, a lot of times we're like, well, we just have to, we're showing what we can do. 
We're showing if we can make it or not. So you rise to a challenge and you have to show whether or not you're up to that challenge. That is not how God works his tests. God doesn't need to test people to find out if they're good enough. God already knows. So when God puts a test on someone, he is doing that to show them or everyone else exactly who that person is. And so here we had the test of Job and God was proving to Satan that Job really believed. Here we have the test of Jesus and God is testing Jesus. He's allowing Satan to tempt Jesus to prove that he really is the Messiah. That's what we need to understand here. This wasn't a, well, what if Jesus would have failed? That's not the case. This is a, Jesus would not have failed. Let me show you that he would not have failed. You know, a lot of times we, when we talk about athletes in sports, you know, with uh, wide receivers in football, you know, we, or with cornerbacks, defensive backs, we say, well, they've never really been tested. They haven't gone up against this wide receiver. So what they'll, what they'll do is the, the offensive coordinator, he'll spread his wide receivers out to try and win matchups, to give his wide receivers favorable positions against these defensive backs. And then on the defensive side, they'll try and move their defensive uh, backs around so that way they can cover the people. And you'll have some defensive backs who are really good at just sticking one-on-one. And you'll have some defensive backs that are just really good at sticking to an area. And so it's always a, a weighty conversation in the sports world on whether or not who's the best, who can do this, who can do that. And so they start tracking these people and you'll have the best wide receiver line up on one side and you'll have the best defensive back line up on that side and then the offensive coordinator will move him to the other side and so the defensive coordinator has to decide whether or not he's moving his defender to that same side or if he's going to use some type of scheme where he uses multiple people to keep that wide receiver under control. And sports people, they'll analyze that and they'll say, well, he's, this defender has never been tested because he doesn't really stick to that wide receiver. You know, or this wide receiver, I mean, he's good, but that's only because nobody ever really guards him. You know, he hasn't been challenged. And so we can eliminate that doubt completely about Jesus. Here we have it in the Bible, the Messiah. We don't have to wonder, did he, was he ever challenged? I mean, like, we know Jesus was perfect, but was it just because he had the perfect life? Well, we've already seen how it wasn't perfect. He was born in a manger. I mean, he was under threat of being killed. He had to flee with his parents when he was just two years old. And then he moved to Nazareth, where it was like a, a poor town. I mean, he's putting himself under these challenges. He is suffering. Jesus didn't have to do any of that. I don't know if we understand the, the impact of the suffering that Christ went through. He didn't have to do any of that. He could have come down and claimed this world as his own. He could have been born as a king. He didn't have to be born at all. Jesus has always existed. He could have come down like Melchizedek in the Old Testament. The the king of Salem, the king of righteousness. But he chose to suffer. Philippians tell us that he took on upon him the form of a servant. Jesus put himself under suffering to show 
that he is able to overcome all these things. And here's just another example of Christ putting himself underneath these great burdens For all the people out there who haven't had a meal in weeks, Jesus has been there. For all the people out there who are just suffering because they feel alone, because they feel abandoned, Jesus has been there. For all the people that feel like their situation, they're born into a bad situation. They were born in suffering times. They were born in a suffering nation. Jesus has been there too. And even as he reaches this pinnacle where He's called the Son of God. He once again puts himself underneath suffering just to show us he's not trying to be above us. He's living with us. Hebrew tells us that we have a God, we have a Christ, we have a Messiah who is not untouched by our infirmities, but has been tempted in every way that we are and still without sin. Christ went through all suffering that we can possibly go through in our lives. He went through it purposefully, not because he had to, but because he wanted to be able to come down to our level and serve us. And that's what he's doing here. Whether it is physical, whether it is social, whether it is historical, whether it is spiritual, Christ took all that suffering. He faced it. When I read these temptations of Christ, I look at 1 John chapter 2, verse 16. See, Satan doesn't tempt people to worship him. He doesn't really do that. He tempts people with the things that are already in the world. When he tempted Adam and Eve, he did not tempt them with his own power. He tempted them with something that God had created. And when we look at the temptation here of Satan, once again we see Satan offering Jesus things of this world. In this particular case, it's food to fulfill his physical need. In 1 John 2.16, we see that everything in the world is the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. All the struggles that we could possibly have in this world, they all fall into those three categories. You're either lusting it with your flesh, that's your physical body, your physical needs, lusting it with your eyes, which can give the idea of possession, or it's the pride of life, the idea of where you stack amongst all people. So here we have Christ has a physical need. He is hungry. And we would all say, no brainer, let's go get some pizza. Let's go get a hamburger. There's a store right down the street. You know, that's what, it's so easy for us to think ourselves that. So let's look at how Jesus in this story handles it. And that's where we see the worshiping Messiah. Uh, John of Damascus says, In former times, God, who is without form or body, could never be depicted. But now when God is seen in the flesh, conversing with men, I make an image of the God whom I see. I do not worship matter. I worship the creator of matter, who bears matter, who became matter for my sake. 
And then Ignatius of Antioch, who was born in the first century, says, Let fire and the cross, let the crowds of wild beasts, let tearings, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the evil torments of the devil come upon me, and only let me attain to Christ, to Jesus Christ. So let's look at Jesus' answer to all this suffering. And it wasn't just suffering from Satan. It was his own suffering from being hungry, from being alone. Let's see how he answers the devil in this first case. In verse 4, But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. What do we see? We see a, a Savior, a Messiah, who points us back to God. He didn't point to himself. He said, yeah, I could do that, but I'm not going to bother. It's just not, not my time right now. He could have said that, but he didn't. He points us back to the God that we worship. He says, man shall not live by bread, but alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. That same word that created the world. You know, God used his words to create this world. Our call to worship brings up how God put man in the garden and God caused everything to grow, every fruit tree. That was not something that man did. A lot of times we come home from work and we're hungry and what do we do? Get ourselves a snack. Make ourselves a sandwich. You know, pull out some leftovers, throw it in the microwave for two seconds. We take these things that man creates and we take care of our own needs. Here, Jesus could have done the same thing. He didn't need a microwave to make a meal. He could have changed stones into bread. That was well within his power. For us, it would be a little bit more miraculous because obviously we're not God. For Jesus, that's like, that's like reaching your hand into a basket and pulling out loaves and loaves of bread. I mean, like he doesn't even need stones. He just like, well, you know, let me get some pizza. Ooh, New York style. Like he could have made New York style pizza back then. Like nobody would know what's going on, but Jesus would have known. I mean, like, do we understand how powerful Jesus is? But he doesn't. You know, <laughs> he doesn't do that. He says, okay, like that might be a physical need, and, and you're right, but let's look at who really provides for our existence. Like, man, man doesn't live by bread alone. I mean, he, he needs bread to survive. And Jesus is pointing it out. Like, he needs bread to survive, of course. I mean, that's true. But besides that, that's just a physical need. Let's look at what's actually going on. Let's look at the perspective of the whole picture. And that's what Jesus gives us here. He says, yes, you need food. Yes, yes. But what you really need is the God who created the food. Amen. You know, when Adam, when Eve was met in the garden by the serpent. And the serpent says, here, eat this food. It will give you wisdom. One thing she forgot is who is the source of all wisdom? God. And her and Adam walked with God in the garden every day. What do you need fruit for wisdom when you can go to the source of wisdom? One of the first things it says, and she desired, um, she saw it was pleasing to the eyes, pleasing to the eyes and good for food. It's like, well, it's good for food. It's a physical desire. 
God can create sustenance in your stomach without any help from us. He can do that. So if he chooses not to, then we have to think about what's his plan. What's his plan? This God who created food to begin with, there's nothing stopping him from providing for us. So why? Now, there's always the story of uh, people throughout of Jim Henson, who he, one of the main reasons he died is because he denied modern medicine to cure his ailments. Something that was completely curable at his time, he denied modern medicine because he said, I'm gonna, God's gonna heal me. I'm not gonna take any modern medicine. Well, God provided that modern medicine for him. So for us, in America, we are provided with lots of things. So we don't need to be stressing about those things. Why do we think about, hey, how am I going to eat today? Or, you know, all of these things when God provides them to us. So I'm not saying purposefully deny yourself food and imagine that anything that you're going to get, God's just going to give it to you. No, no, no. He provides us with things that we need to use. The the point is, you should not be seeking after those things. That should not be your focus. Jesus says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word from the mouth of God. So when we're faced with these trials, when we are suffering, whether any of these same things, socially, physically, spiritually, we are suffering, Focus on God. He will provide. He does provide. If he hasn't, then either we're not seeing right, or he's waiting, he he is waiting for us to connect with him. A lot of times. So what does that how does that relate to us in this world? Well, Important things to realize here is that Jesus, through this trial, he breaks a lot of stereotypes in the Bible. Important stereotype um, was Eve. She saw the fruit, she hungered for it, and she fell. Another stereotype is Noah. He came through the flood, brought up out of water, just like Jesus was, And then he grew his garden and he got drunk, filling fleshly desires. And he went right back into that sinful nature. We also see the children of Israel. They are brought out of Egypt. Jesus was brought out of Egypt. They go through the Red Sea. They go through a baptism of sorts. They reach the Mount Sinai and Moses goes up into the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's getting the law from God. What does the children of Israel do? They rebel against God. They make their own gods. And even after getting the law, Moses takes them right to the promised land. And they tell him, no, we can't do that. We cannot go into the promised land because it's too much. And here Jesus comes out of Egypt through the water. The Jews would have known this. The Jews would have connected this instantly. And he's faced with the challenge. And what does he do? He worships God. He breaks all those stereotypes. Bad things come out of Egypt. Abraham went down to Egypt and he sinned and there were plagues. And 
Pharaoh had to kick him out of Egypt then. Same thing that happens with the children of Israel later. Same thing when the Jews with their kings, they go down and put their trust in Egypt and they're captive by Babylon. All these stereotypes, the Jews, they keep going back to this place. And here Jesus says, fine, let me show you that it's, I can break all these stereotypes. And he goes down to Egypt. He comes out of Egypt. And he goes through the water. And he's proclaimed the Son of God. Israel was proclaimed to be the Son of, of God. And yet they still kept going after other idols. And here Jesus breaks all of that. And he beats all of that challenge. And he uses this confrontation and he worships God. He says, it's God who brings us out. It's God's words that sustain us. So how are we going to take this passage? So knowing that Christ has overcome and is helping us overcome, we can look at the future with hope. Because Christ has already beat Every negative stereotype. What's the negative stereotype that you're lear- uh, working with? You're a loner. Christ was alone here. He broke that stereotype. You're uh, considered a lower class person. Jesus was a Jew, not a Roman at his time. He overcomes that stereotype. You don't have enough to eat. You don't have the physical strength. You're tired, you're worn out, you're suffering physically. Jesus puts himself through that and he breaks that stereotype and still worships God. He does that all for us. And then when he left to go sit at the right hand of the throne of God, after he died for our sins, so before just suffering, besides just suffering through it with us, he then takes all of our mistakes. So every time we fail in those sufferings, Christ took those upon himself. He died for them, and he takes them to God, and he says, Father, I've been through this. I know how hard it is. Give them mercy. Give them grace. Jesus is doing that right now for us. This isn't a man in the, in the past that we look back and say, well, I mean, great, I'm glad he did it, but he didn't live in our time. No, he is alive right now in heaven, looking down on us saying, I know what you're going through. And giving us grace, giving us mercy. So what do we need to do? First thing we need to understand is, we don't focus on ourselves. We focus on the God who is in control. We focus and we worship God. Yes, we're suffering. Yes, I don't understand your suffering. Yes, you don't understand someone else's suffering. But Jesus understands all of our suffering. Whether it's a teenager, whether it's an older person, whether it's a single parent, whether it's a single person, Jesus knows the struggles. If we focus on God and on Christ, He will sustain us. Secondly, we need to rely on Christ working through us to overcome our situations and temptations. Whenever you're tempted, whenever you're in a rough situation, you can rely on Christ. Why? Because he already beat it. He already won. He sees the enemy. He sees the struggle. And he beats them. We can trust him. Now, what if we're not saved? 
Well, if you're not saved, then you need to repent and you need to trust Christ. Because he will help you, but he's not going to help you against your will. You have to repent. Isn't it great to have a Savior that comes to us when we weren't looking for him? Who puts himself through every one of our problems? Who took on our curse and the punishment for all of our choices? He didn't have to. We didn't ask for him to, but he did. And he gives us a choice to follow him. God came to Abraham when Abraham was an idolater living in Haran. Abraham wasn't a God worshiper then. God came to Noah living in this world of wickedness where the Bible says every thought of man was wicked. That means Noah too. God came to Noah. He said, I'm going to deliver you and your family. Noah responded by building the ark. And now God comes to us. He sends us Jesus. Jesus took on that form and he says, here I am taking all your problems. Will you trust me? And we have that. And as Christians, once you're saved, we may suffer. We may be tempted. We may be weak and alone. But we can have the confidence that he already went through it and helps us through it. That's what I want you guys, I want to leave you guys with today. If you're saved and suffering, Christ is helping you. If you're unsaved, then Christ has come to you and he says, please, let me help you. Let me save you. If you're on a pinnacle and you're seeing more challenges, Christ says, I'll walk with you through those challenges. Let's focus on God, who came down to us, lived through our problems, and is now here to help us. Let's pray.